Dancing groups have faced challenges and abuse from both the state and individual citizens. Local governments have renovated certain open spaces to prevent dancing groups from rehearsing there, such as outside the gates of a university, which was thought to have brought down the, the level of culture of a place of learning. Equally, residents in apartment blocks have done things as awful as allegedly unleash dangerous dogs on groups of dancing women, as well as drop human feces on them from above. Welcome to Tong, Tracing the Trend, a podcast exploring the origins of cultural phenomena in China, from niche to mainstream, from past to present. Episode 2. Welcome. Today we are diving into the topic of public square dancing and aging in urban China as we continue this Tracing the Trend series, a forum for knowledge exchange, learning and exploration. I'm Jenny Zhang and with me today is my co-host Stefan Harvey. Hello. And our guest Rohan Chen. Hi. Uh, so Rohan is the co-author of a newly published book, The People's Dance, The Power and Politics of Guangchang Wu a PhD candidate in dance studies at the University of Auckland, and also a dancer and teacher of Chinese dance. Her current research interest centers on dance and politics in the context of the People's Republic of China, dance ethnography, and cross-cultural dance education. So today we're going to be having a conversation around a particular topic rather unique to Chinese society, uh, which many of you have observed in China, or perhaps across social media. If you go to almost any Chinese city and spend your early morning or evening walking around public spaces, open plazas or residential complexes, you will most likely see a group of predominantly old women dancing en masse. While all kinds of these genres and movements and music can be heard, the women we find most likely will be moving at a medium pace to thumping EDM beats, loud Chinese pop, or sometimes just traditional folk Chinese music. These dancing middle-aged women or dama is a term which we'll probably address later, are the face of the phenomenon known as public square dancing, or in Chinese, guangchangwu. Taking a step back and looking at dance as an expression form itself, I'd like to quote a little excerpt from actually the series preface of the book. Dance is an especially powerful way to share ideas capturing our interests through visual spectacles and visceral experiences. As a public performance and a participatory activity, dancing highlights and obscures specific aspects of humanity. That really resonated with me just to underline the importance of dance. For many, it's really the ultimate, you know, artistic expression using our own form. Yeah, and um, whilst we can think all those theoretical things about the body, and movement. I think square dancing might just seem like another quirky Chinese trend that's a source of amusement to a lot of foreigners um, who are out there on the ground observing what's going on in cities. Uh, but if you actually look beneath the surface, it's really a product and actually reflection of all the great socio-economic changes that China's undergone since the reform era, which began back in the 1980s. 
And moreover, now, with an estimated 100 million people regularly participating in communal dancing, it also begs the question of whether these old ladies are just the sole face of Guangzhou. That's a very valid question to ask, Stefan. So let's discuss the development of Guangzhou actually, and what it says about China's past, present and future. Towards the end, we'd love to deep dive into ageing in urban China a little bit more and the opportunities and challenges facing older generation today. The origins, past and present of square dancing. There are all sorts of traditions and factors that contributed to what we now call Guangchang Wu or, or public dancing. Um, before the communist revolution in 1949, while the communists were still in various base camps across China, the Communist Party actually capitalized on a form of folk dance called Yanggu, which actually dates all the way back to the Song Dynasty, but was very popular among peasants in the north. So the party used that to garner support among them and say, look, we, we know what you guys are into. We have things in common. After 1949, the Communist Revolution, state-sponsored exercise was also strongly promoted largely as a way to help citizens keep fit and healthy after decades of foreign aggression and civil war. And also during the early years of communist rule, a thing called calisthenics, which was a form of group exercise, a sort of pseudo gymnastic dance was carried out to instructions through a speaker. During the Cultural Revolution from the late 60s to late 70s, communal exercise and performance was particularly prevalent as a means of promoting socialist values and a collectivist mindset. Right, thank you, Jenny and uh, Stefan, uh, for contextualizing the history of queer dancing in China. Um, well, it actually involves uh, issues concerning the cultural road of the unmasked performance uh, from 1960s to 1970s. Uh, the first dance form that connects to the contemporary Guangchang practice uh, is Yanggu, uh, according to many dance researchers. So Yanggu is a popular folk dance practice originating uh, from the Song Dynasty. Um, and it reflected the needs of an agrarian society, which is looking for uh, harvest so this has guaranteed the fact that uh, Yanggu established a rather solid foundation across its people. The instrumental function of Yanggu during the revolutionary times in China was seen as its capacities to mobilize masses, especially in rural areas. So this function of Yanggu had potentially led to the fact that Yanggu was held as uh, the kind of uh, official celebratory art before the, uh, before the Cultural Revolution. So the first connection we draw from our data is that the majority of the participants who were part of the revolutionary propaganda culture and the art team are women. And then the second connection is that just as young girl promoted by the regime, uh, those collective practices always associated with uh, mixed ideologies promoted by the state and the party. And this ideological gaze works for the square dancing as well. So all of this socio-political phenomena resulted in many retired women and men finding themselves in new places later in life without any kind of real social circle. I think it would be good to point out really for, for listeners that 
you know, without stating the obvious, like the genesis of many cultural practices and behaviors, the chronological development of these multiple variables, historical, political, social, are kind of enmeshed to create this broader adoption on a nationwide scale. Again, you know, particularly focusing on even the role of women, China's had a its own development, its own course of what women do, their role in society, and also their role within family and community in, in a wider context. Yeah, I mean, Guangchangwu was and is a way for newcomers to develop a social life and, and better integrate into the local community. Mm, well, um, social integration is a very um, conspicuous feature displayed by the practice of Guangchangwu. With the flourishing of the practice itself, Guangchangwu has evolved in a platform for participants to communicate, socialize, and build the sense of community and belonging. I think we will touch on the um, demographics of square dancing participants later. The different groups of people, for example, um, the retired middle-aged women, uh, the empty nesters who have to deal with transition of their life as their children starting university study, getting married or leaving home for job opportunities and so on. They all sense the need to having an activity that could fill out their time. So many square dancers uh, I met during the um, field work for the book indicate that they felt time after dinner is quite boring. So sometimes the dance group would be formed autonomously if there are several close friends who agree on this. Well, for most participants who desire to uh, start their square dance journey, the first thing they need to do is to find a suitable dance group that they can stick to for a long period. It is through the daily practices and the process uh, one could say there are opportunities for friendship to be developed among these middle-aged and elderly women. Another important factor brought with the rapid urbanization of China society in relation to Guangchang practice is that uh, the square dance groups are generally made up of strangers. This means that with the diverse demographics and population who attended this practice, square dance also served as an opportunity to disrupt the class divisions of the population. And, and it's really interesting, Rohan, that you mm. touch on this theme of uh, disrupting class divisions, because I think another issue that plays into the wider picture of how and why people participate in dancing that does affect class as well is that uh, since the reform and opening up era, along with a decreased state presence in industry, reforms have also seen the reduction of state welfare, namely pensions, healthcare, and other forms of social assistance. So that leaves the onus increasingly on elderly people and their families to look after themselves. Now, be it conscious or subconscious, that does mean there's more of an imperative to remain fit and healthy in old age, basically so that they avoid having to pay for increasingly expensive healthcare in the case that they do get sick. And this isn't to say that old people are dancing out of fear of getting sick, like they want to participate in Guangchangwu. That's, that's the activity they've chosen to do. You know, they need to find a way to fill their free time, like you said. But there is, unfortunately, also an added appeal that is both in the interests of the individual and government policy, which aims at reducing welfare. 
breaking down stereotypes, looking at those behind square dancing. So I like to kind of understand a little bit more about the image of square dancing. You know, for me, when I have experienced it myself, I've been a bystander, I've read quite a lot of media coverage on it as well. It seems the focus to be on kind of the older female demographic, which perhaps does continue to perpetuate that stereotype of, you know, the older grannies or aunties who are doing this because they have to do it or because they have no other better option. It'd be great to uncover a little bit more on the reality of those performing and participating. Yeah, I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason, right? So it's uh, something that's quite hard to debunk, but also something we should totally attempt to pick apart. I mean, looking at how Guangchang is perceived by citizens inside of China, it's clear that this stereotype of groups of old women claiming public or communal space doesn't sit well with many. It is a stereotype we want to debunk slightly, but it's still worth focusing on for a minute to understand kind of why Guangchang Wu has been met with a lot of resistance by some people. A lot of dancing groups have faced challenges and even abuse from both the states and individual citizens. Local governments have renovated certain open spaces to prevent dancing groups from rehearsing there, such as outside the gates of a university, which was thought to have brought down the level of culture of a place of learning. And equally, residents in apartment blocks have done things as awful as unleash dangerous dogs on groups of dancing women and also drop human feces on them from above. This sounds really extreme, Stefan. I think, I mean, first of all, I, I know many of our listeners may think, why so extreme and why so negative? It's just a bunch of people having fun. But I do think this probably indicates some wider divisions, whether it's uh, culture, you know, how we define culture, generational differences, interest differences, and of course, the rapid economic growth of China. Yeah, I think the important thing is to pick apart what are legitimate concerns by other citizens and what by, might be more problematic concerns. So there's clearly an anxiety that taking up public space and dancing to loud pop beats suggests a lack of refinement or culture, especially in an age where Chinese citizens increasingly feel under the scrutiny of foreign observers as it becomes a country that is more in the global limelight. And I think public disturbance is a legitimate concern, blasting out big beats from downstairs apartment blocks. Um, and that would be frustrating, annoying, inconsiderate of others. But whether one likes the songs and dances that Guangchang Wu actually involves is largely a question of taste. And kind of in, in line with this, a few people have argued that underlying these anxieties and also confrontations are arguably an innate sexism, ageism, and classism. The term Dhamma, which we've been speaking about before, why now more widely it's used to describe a certain demographic of older ladies in quite an endearing way. It was arguably coined with more sexist and ageist connotations of older women who didn't really know how to keep up with the times. The term actually began to circulate in 2013 when large numbers of middle-aged Chinese women were just playing with stocks as amateur investors and at one point whilst the gold market was quite precarious they bought up large amounts of gold and it almost destabilized stocks in wall street and for a moment commentators were thinking wow these these middle to older aged women are, are just kind of like taking on the market by themselves and disrupting this like center of capitalist power in the west 
um, and a lot of support was garnered for them. But um, once their investments caused a bubble and the prices of gold slumped again, this group of Dangar under the same term were actually derided as economically ignorant old ladies who didn't know what they were doing. And actually that summer when that discourse was happening, even the Wall Street Journal used the term, which brought the word into Western discourse as well. The power of Chinese Dhamma uh, sounds really intimidating. Yeah, because I think for most Chinese, the first impression of Guangchang Wu, they probably would be the image of Guangchang Wu Dhamma, which by the way means Chinese square dance grannies or aunties. So this is actually concerned more to the social stigma of the image of Dhamma in which I feel that gender stereotype unfolded by the image of Dhamma is the key because the, the sarcasm of the image of Dhamma is really not about them or a bunch of elderly women who love to dance. In fact, the pejorative meaning contained within the description of Dhamma is that their image of dancing publicly and playing music uh, loud symbolizes the contradiction uh, or the opposite of the social norms. That's why there are many oral complaints and physical confrontations which happen in the beginning of this practice. So the word of Dhamma in the context of Mandarin generally associated with the image of the elderly women who are lousy playing music and dancing publicly and taking up public spaces randomly. The negative image of Dhamma started to uh, improve, however, uh, as the government stepped in to regulate and guide the development of square dancing. Yeah, that's a great point, because equally, state involvement can be positive. A lot of state funding goes into square dancing in the form of competitions and subsidizing activities. And there's also an element of regulation, as you've touched on, and, and we'll go on to talk about a bit more. I think one of the most symbolic things representative of this government involvement was that in 2015, the government actually released 12 state-sanctioned dancers that are sometimes even compulsory parts of dance competitions. Uh, yes, I think the things we just discussed have all shown the uh, close collaboration between square dance participants and government at different levels. Square dancing in many aspects is a field where the soft governance works. Just as the social contradictions raised by Guangchang Wu Dama, it is due to the regulations and the policies drafted by the officials that square dancing and its participants are gradually under the control of the government. The conflicts and the frictions are able to be solved because of the laws. The governmental role in guiding the healthy development of square dance is critical. Uh, founding allowances and providing of teacher resources from the cultural center can help the grassroots society to improve the quality of dance performance and also coordinate things immediately. This all guarantee the healthy and orderly progress of square dance events. Uh, however, uh, as the stepping in of the government and cultural centers, it might will also, to a certain degree, create some negative impacts on the agency of square dancing. To pick up on government involvement, it's fair to say like many practices in China, 
once things get to a certain scale or once things receive a certain level of adoption, there is degrees to which governments do get involved in different geographic locations. I think uh, older population, especially middle-aged and elderly women, uh, they are still the dominant group associated with the practice. Uh, they generally range from 55 to 70s in these days. The reason that they are occupying the majority of this practice is that it is probably due to the fact that they had experienced common historical events when they were young. So, for example, they might have undergone political movements, being sent to the mountainous areas uh, to be re-educated, and just when they thought that their life could go back to normal state, the society started reforms uh, in many aspects. So those women could get laid off, uh, plus the fact that they might be the parents who raised their child under the one-child policy, uh, and they have to face the challenge of being alone when their adult children leaves home for a job or start a new family in a different city. And that's why some researchers would call this demographic as the first generation of lonely mothers in China's contemporary uh, history. Also, their experience in the past can also help us understand the cultural and the historical roots of Guangchang Wu uh, we talked about before. And then uh, some of the Guangchang Wu dancers we met in the process of gathering data for the book also revealed that when they were young, they had no opportunity or condition to practice in dance or attend any kind of performances. So uh, Guangchang Wu actually served as a stage to fulfill their and finish the dream when they were young. This actually suggests that being fitness and healthy is perhaps not the only motivation for some square dancers. Rather, they, there is bigger aspiration and ambition to motivate them to treat square dancing very seriously. So it's evident that while it is predominantly elderly women involved, it's a diverse scene that manifests itself in many different ways. And I think this is a point worth bearing in mind for whenever anyone's talking about China, because while it is a very homogenous society, especially given its size and compared to a lot of Western societies in particular, it's always going to have its own forms of diversity within it. And building on this idea of misconceptions, there's also a perception inside and outside of China that on mass dancing is some kind of attempt to cling on to collectivist ideals and group pastimes rooted in the Maoist era. Now, of course, there's an element of truth in that trend being reminiscent of the collectivist era, not necessarily as a means to desperately hold on to past trends, but more just because large numbers of the people who do engage with Guangchang Wu grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was just part of their childhood. While communal dancing is inherently communal, for want of a better word, some academics argue that the Guangchang Wu scene plays host to some very clear consumer choices. First of all, we have spoken about the, the breaking down of social boundaries and all the rest of it, but ultimately where someone dances and who they dance with is a personal choice geared to highlight some kind of social distinction. 
For instance, the academic Claudia Huang spent a whole Saturday with some women who would go dancing in the morning, go for hot pot together, and then play mahjong well into the evening. And it, and it was clear that the whole day was oriented around quite an accepted level of relatively high expenditure and consumption. So I think this, to some extent, debunks the idea that Guangzhou is simply just older people clinging on to the Maoist era. I've also seen some more serious individuals and groups at least more affluent, who are choosing to rent out private spaces to rehearse, really broadening the definition of Guangchang War. Why it could also arguably be translated as communal dancing to avoid the public-private distinction. The common denominator here is really, I think, for Guangchang War, the level, whatever level that is, of government association, which raises, I think, a broader point to be made in regards to the difference between Guangchang Wu, uh, communal dancing or just dancing in general. You know, if you're just a group of friends dancing in a square, what is that? And I think I think this question of the public-private distinction is a really good one because something I want to go on to as well is following on from this idea of, it, of you choosing where and who you dance with as a consumer act. There are also more traditional or more widely accepted consumer acts involved with dancing because even dancers on lower incomes might dance in a public space compared to indoor spaces like we've just said and they'd pay a very minimal fee for the upkeep of their group. But they'll also save money to spend on shoes or dresses, especially if they enjoy practicing a Latin or traditional Chinese style of dance. And there's a huge market on e-commerce platforms, particularly Taobao, for dancing outfits and gear. Combined with consumer choices is a large-scale corporate interest in the trend as well. Major apps such as Tangdou and Itiwu Bar, which stands for the numbers 1758, but is also a pun on the phrase, let's dance. These apps also debunk the idea that older generations are incapable of being tech savvy. I think people of any demographic can certainly embrace technology with enthusiasm, provided that the service available meets their interests. Yes, I think in the case of Guangchang Wu, the historical serendipity is that between the time range from 2000 to 2008, online Guangchang videos and dance choreography started to emerge, and some of the online celebrities and their videos went viral. Uh, the wave of spreading uh, the online dance videos influenced some early Guangchang Wu dancers and practitioners. As China's technological market and industrialization keeps expanding, it is no doubt that Technology, especially smartphone apps, played a major role in spreading the popularity of Guangchang Wu. The progressive development of dance teaching and learning apps has attracted dancers of uh, different ages. Not only confined with those dance-related apps, other apps in relation to the administration and organization of square dance groups have also caught as attention. For example, the social media giant WeChat. Many square dancers used WeChat as a major tool to follow the latest news of their groups. In addition, uh, the form of square dance organization also established a huge market that focused on the elderly participants of Guangchang Wu. Looking at aging in urban China, 
It's clear that older generations often face a lot of unfair slack in a rapidly changing and urbanized China. That in itself is significant, as it denotes a shift in the status and respect of older people in Chinese culture, particularly as they were seen as pinnacle of wisdom in society. It'd be great to hear a little bit more on really how this has changed. I think the status of elderly people in the context of Chinese society was high. Elderly people were、um, highly revered. This has relation to the moral principle of filial piety rooted in Confucianism tradition.、Uh, due to the trend of urbanization and the wave of immigration, the old familial、uh, structure that several generations live together has been transformed. In the past, kids were a form of insurance. However, as more and more adult children choose to leave their home for、uh, opportunities, the idea of filial piety is challenged. The economic pressure faced by individual families required the value stressed more on the equal dynamic instead of hierarchy within the family. I'd like to know a little bit more on what else do older people do in the city? Are there specific organized events or community activities、um, that are new in the past few decades、uh, apart from Guangchang War? We can see how elderly Chinese urbanites, who are perhaps unlikely to be on board with the most cutting-edge technology, do embrace apps and social media when it's convenient for them. We've already spoke about them enthusiastically using Taobao, and they might also use Herma, which is the high-end shopping service offered by Alibaba to do online delivery and to do their shopping. The government's decreased welfare state over several decades is beginning to clash with an increasingly socialist rhetoric and narrative in state media and propaganda campaigns, which isn't necessarily that socialist in essence. So Guangchangwu, I think, is just one of many trends that sheds light on how Chinese elderly people and the state are constantly negotiating a, a shifting relationship in a market economy. From both of what you guys have provided, it's been so insightful to really see the differences between older people, particularly as well. I think in different areas, which I think is really important for our listeners to be aware of. You know, those living in the city, those who are living in rural areas, as well as migrants, have different experiences. So it's very difficult for us to provide a huge generalization, and thus. The complexity of answers hope to address really why, on an individual level, people do have it slightly differently. COVID nineteen's impact, the future opportunities and challenges for China's aging population. Due to the adverse effects of the one-child policy, which began in nineteen seventy nine. Uh, and only reduced to two-child policy in 2013. China's aging population is only set to grow. So currently, there's around 70% of Chinese citizens who are aged 60 or over, and this is projected to peak at around 35% towards the end of this century. And this makes Chinese people over 60 a core demographic that deserves attention from academics, policymakers, and, and business people alike. As more people begin to age, their relationship with the state, social trends, and consumer behaviour will largely shape the face of China in the 21st century. But I think before we look to the future, we want to briefly look back at how COVID has affected Guangchengwu. 
Well, I think in the beginning of Wuhan's COVID-19 eruption last year, um, there's the news that the state-run media, People's Daily, uh, has released a video showing that a group of doctors and patients who infected COVID-19 were dancing uh, Guangchang in a makeshift hospital. This has caused attention for both people across the world and dance scholarship in China. In this sense, it could be said that the COVID-19 pandemic actually has brought certain exposure to square dancing, not only within China, but for the whole world. Uh, in general, after the video of the collective dance in the makeshift hospital in Wuhan was released, the practice of Guangchang Wu in relation to the purpose of fitness and health was immediately captured uh, by the uh, dance scholarship. Uh, there are journals openly called for the papers in regard to Guangchang Wu and its pragmatic functions. Um, through the discussion I think we had today so far, as the global pandemic is still unfolding, uh, I think the thing we can anticipate in the foreseeable future is that we have to coexist with COVID um, in the process of spreading Guangchang Wu uh, by aid of technology more and more young people will be absorbed and attracted for sure. Guangchang Wu is symbolic of a range of pastimes and spaces for civil society among old people that are often overlooked. And this is culturally specific to China, but old people and their lifestyles are often marginalized in most societies. As the aging population in China continues to surge, I think focusing on how they go about their lives and how they have fun won't just be a question of compassion, but in fact, something of a requisite for anyone who wishes to have a really comprehensive understanding of Chinese society going forward. And touching on dance and technology integrating with each other, I don't think it will become a lost art form in a way that I don't think a lot of these very human practices will. I think an example of how these very basic instinctive pastimes have merged with technology is TikTok or Douyin, which is the original Chinese version available in the mainland, because that really brought dancing or just bodily movements to sound and imagery into the mainstream. And it's taken Western consumer societies by storm too. And you see young kids in the West really adopting this art form and being very creative through the app, which ultimately is a celebration of dance and bodily movement. Old people's voices will receive increasing attention as they take up an ever-growing share of the population. We may never see the government revert back to a big state like the iron rice bowl of the Maoist era, as mentioned at the beginning. But policymakers will not be able to ignore the demands and anxieties of such a significant demographic. Their needs for welfare and assistance will also impact younger professionals who are already increasingly burdened with intergenerational responsibilities, looking after both children and aging parents. To close, it's been a really insightful conversation. Guangchang Wu represents many things to many people, expression, community, and well-being. This continues to survive post-COVID, and I think that people will continue to dance through the times. Thank you both, Stefan and Rohan, for joining me today. If anyone's interested in the topic, further reading on the People's Dance, the Power and Politics of Guangchang Wu is a great source with Palgrave Macmillan and available on Amazon. Thank you for listening to Tong's Tracing the Trend. 
We are a collective of cross-cultural experts championing for a more connected and informed global society. For more information, head over to our website, tongdigital.com. Want to submit a topic for discussion? DM us on Instagram, at tongglobal. That's at T-O-N-G global to have your voice heard.